this is Exodus 20, uh, 1 through 21, and this is uh, the Ten Commandment passage that might sound familiar, um, but I, I pray that we would just slow down and kind of pay attention. So this is God's word for us. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may, may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, as Alex read, we are in Exodus 20. We're right in the halfway point of the book. We're in chapter 20 out of 40. And for context, um, the nation of Israel has been in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. And we're told early on in the book that Israel cried out to God, that God has heard their cries, he has seen their affliction, and he knew what they were facing. And so he sent Moses as his mediator to lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. And we're now at the place in the book that God is teaching and showing his people how to live as free, as his chosen nation and treasured possession. And we're going to see that this is going to take a while. In fact, it's going to take 40 years for this to happen. One commentator that I have referenced in this series pointed out that God delivered his people out of slavery overnight, but it's going to take 40 years to get the slavery out of God's people. It's going to take them 40 years to learn how to live as free, and we're going to see that that is not an easy process. 
And it's not an easy process for us either. Maybe this has been your experience and the case for you. For example, let's say that there's a guy in our community, and I promise this is completely generic. I'm not talking about anybody in this room, and so you don't have to sit there and think, is it me he's talking about or is it somebody else he's talking about? This is completely generic. Um, But let's say there's this guy, and he doesn't grow up in the church, he doesn't know God, and he completely worships his career. He pours himself into it to the detriment of really any relationship in his life, his wife, his kids, and even his friends. But he's invited to church by a friend, and our guy goes, and he's convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he enters into a relationship with Jesus, and he vows that things are going to change. Things are going to be different. He's not going to solely focus on his career anymore, but he's going to make his faith, his family, and his friendships his priority. That's on Sunday. Well, Monday comes, and with it comes not only the pressures of work, but also the thrills of accomplishment. And so he's right back at it, leaving early in the morning and working late into the night, missing meals with his family and time with his family and with his friends. And then the next week he returns to church, to, returns to church and he's convicted, and he promises that he's going to get it right this time. But he ends up repeating that same behavior that is so ingrained in him. So this is the dynamic that is taking place in Israel. They have physically and politically been set free from their slavery, but they don't live like it yet. In a sense, they keep running back into their slavery, and so God takes them out into the wilderness to change them. He wants to make them not just politically free, but emotionally and spiritually as well. He wants to form them, as God points out in chapter 19, into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so we come to a passage this morning where this most significantly happens really for the first time. The giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. Now my guess is there were varying emotions as Alex just read that passage and maybe you felt one that was kind of a yuck feeling, kind of a ugh, you know, rules and regulations, religion. And we often feel that when we're confronted with different commands in the Bible because in our heart of hearts, we are all lawbreakers. A few years ago, a book came out called The Day America Told the Truth by James Patterson and Peter Kim. And they observed that in our culture there is, and I quote, absolutely no moral consensus at all. That everyone is making up their own personal moral codes or maybe even their own Ten Commandments. And there are certain rules that people actually will live their life by. And here's a few of them. People said this, I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. I will steal from those who really won't miss it. I will lie when it suits me so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. I will cheat on my spouse. After all, given the chance, he or she will do the same. I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day in every five. And at one point in their survey of over 1,800 people, they asked the question, what are you willing to do for $10 million? 25% said they would abandon their family. 23% said that they would work as a prostitute for a week. 7% said they would murder a stranger. And they go, out to point, they go on to point out that the difference wasn't that significant between non-Christians and people that claim to follow Jesus. And here's the sad reality. 
That book was written 23 years ago. So I think it's safe to say that those stats probably haven't changed for the better. Now, at the end of the day, don't we live this way? Aren't there certain commands in the Bible that we choose to maybe ignore a little bit? We choose to go all in on the ones that we're good at or that naturally come easy to us. We hear something like, do not murder, and you think, done, right? Easy. But what about coveting? In Charlotte, coveting and envy is what drives our economy. You may hear, do not commit adultery, and you may think, of course, well, I would never do that. But what about telling little white lies? What about stealing from our government on our taxes? The point is, we view a lot of the commands in the Bible as restrictive, maybe even enslaving, and certainly optional. But this morning, I want us to actually see that they are the opposite, that it is in the law of God in his commands, that we actually find freedom. As Chuck DeGroat points out in his book, Leaving Egypt, I've mentioned this book a number of times, I can't recommend it enough. He said, the whole intent of God's law is to restore people into a loving relationship with God and with each other. So in a sense, obeying God's law is how we love God, how we are loved by God, and how we love others correctly. It cultivates peace, shalom, and love between God, his people, and each other, because it is love, as Mumford and Sons points out in their song, Sigh No More, love that will not betray you, dismay you, or enslave you. It will set you free to be more like the man you were made to be. So let's dive in. Let's take a look at God's law, and in doing so, we're going to see four things, and this is the outline in your bulletin. First, the giver of the law, the order of the law, the purpose of the law, and the obedience of the law. And so let's consider our first point together, the giver of the law, and we see this in verses 1 and 2 from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right. Here's the easiest question of the day. Who is the giver of the law? God, right? My guess is you probably knew that. But we really need to understand who this God is. Because knowing who he is is super important, especially as it relates to the law. And we see this in the first six words in verse 2, where God says, I am the Lord your God. Now, this is something that we talked about in chapter 3 in the story of the burning bush when Moses goes to God and says, all right, I'll go to Egypt and I will tell them that our, your people are supposed to leave, but I need to know your name. What's your name? And God answered and he said this, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to me. So in the original language of the Hebrew, God's divine name is Yahweh. I am who I am. And anytime you see in the Old Testament the word Lord capitalized, that is his divine name. That is Yahweh. In verse 2 of our passage, you'll notice in the bulletin the word uh, Lord is capitalized. And so literally verse 2 starts out with, I am Yahweh. I am, I am. Now why is that significant? Now, I don't want to re-preach my sermon from Exodus 3, but essentially it's this. Yahweh is the great I am, the sovereign and almighty Lord. 
He is the supreme, self-existent, eternal, and unchangeable God. There is no other like Him. And the only way that He can describe Himself is to compare Himself to Himself, if that makes sense. He is otherworldly in His holiness and transcendence. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the ultimate God. And so what that means for us is that when he tells us how we should live according to how we were created, he actually knows what he's talking about. And maybe we just don't. Think about it this way. If you have a car and your car takes unleaded, you don't want to put diesel in it. Because what happens if you do? Well, you can ask one of our pastors, Mark Upton. When Mark's son Davis was in high school, he borrowed Mark's car, and he went to put gas in it, and he filled it up with diesel. And guess what happened? Well, it broke, and it cost thousands of dollars to repair. And the same is true for us, okay? If we live our lives in a way that our Creator did not intend, then we too will inevitably break down. For example, take number one. Command number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Going back to my original illustration, if we make our careers the most important thing in our life, more important than anything else, more important than God, our family, our friends, what happens? Well, we're putting something in a position it was never meant to occupy, so it won't deliver. And not only that, it will destroy us. It will ruin our marriages and our families. It will lead to burnout or a heart attack or something worse. God is saying, put me first in your life, and if you don't, spiritual, moral, and maybe even physical death will follow. It's like putting diesel in a car that's made for unleaded. But we can also learn something else about this huge God, this eternal God, this law-giving God in verse 2, and it's something that's so easy to miss, but it's so beautiful, because this holy, huge creator God says, I am the Lord, your God. Your God. That's the language of the promise. That is the language of the covenant. Commentators point out that the word your there is singular, that it's second person singular. And so this shows that this God has a personal relationship with each one of his people, that we can know him personally, that we can know him intimately, and we can know him individually. That's the type of relationship that he's giving us. And what does this relationship do to us? Well, it saves us. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, I have saved you. I have redeemed you. I am your personal savior to each individual person. Notice he didn't say, I'm the God of Moses, the guy that brought you out of slavery. Instead, in chapter 19, he points this out. He says, I brought you out. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. God is Yahweh, the great I am, the creator of all things, the creator of you. And he knows what's best for you and me. He is your God. He knows you personally. He knows your name. He knows your face. He knows your struggles, and He is your Redeemer. This is the story of Israel, and if you are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it is your story as well. And that brings us to our second point, the order of the law, and this is so super important to remember. 
And I think if you take home anything today, I want you to take home this. Because let me ask you this. Did you notice where Israel was when they received the commands of God? Were they in slavery in Egypt? No. God gave them his law after he had already set them free. God doesn't send Moses to Egypt with these Ten Commandments and say, okay, if you obey these, you'll be free. No, rather he says, I have set you free. I have redeemed you. I have set you free from your slavery. Now this is how you live in your freedom. Remember, God saved Israel before they obeyed one single command. Their obedience did not lead to their deliverance. Rather, the opposite is true, and the same is true for us. The law does not bring us freedom. It doesn't cause, cause God to love us or free us from our spiritual slavery. It is when we realize that in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, we have been saved from our sin then our heart posture changes and we begin to be motivated to obey God's law, as DeGroote went on to write. If we mistake obedience to the law for wholeness and righteousness, we get outward conformity instead of the wholehearted love that motivates true obedience. Now, this is really tricky for me. For me, I was sharing with some friends this week that when I was in college, when I decided it was time for me to get right with God, essentially what that means is I got really legalistic. I wanted to live my life perfectly, and I thought that if I did, that God would love me, accept me, and be proud of me. And so I worked as hard as I could to live my life according to God's law. Now, the problem here is that ultimately what this did to me is it either gave me a lot of arrogance or a lot of shame. Because I would go to my fraternity parties, right? My fraternity brothers would walk up and slurring. They would say, Gordon, you're such a great guy. I'm so proud of you. I wish I was as strong as you. And I would hear this over and over again, and I became this very prideful man. I was very arrogant. But at the same time, if I didn't keep God's law, I felt condemnation and shame. For example, if I didn't wake up and read my Bible, I would think, oh, great, now I'm going to have a bad day. Or if I did wake up to read my Bible, but then I fell asleep because I was tired, I would think, you are so lazy, Gordon, you are such a loser. Or heaven forbid, if some morning I did not feel like reading my Bible, I would think, are you even a Christian? Do you love God at all? And I wish I could say that that behavior is in the past. If life is going well, I think I must be living right. All right, when I'm playing golf, and I hit an errant shot, and it hits a tree, and it bounces back into the fairway, I will say, preacher bounce, you know, as if God gave me a favorable lie because of my vocation. Now, I'm joking, and I don't really feel that way when I play golf, primarily because all of my shots usually end up pretty bad, but I will say this, when life is going well for me, I default to thinking that I am doing more good than bad. But when life is hard, I quickly assume it's on me. You know, even this week, it's been really hard in my family and in my heart. I've been sad, heartbroken, and confused, and I've gone to God in prayer, and I've prayed. I even prayed a verse out of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting, which is a good prayer to pray, right? It's in the Bible for a reason, but it occurred to me late in the week that I merely wanted to go to God. I wanted Him to tell me what was in my life, the one thing I needed to fix so that my circumstance would improve. 
Just tell me what to do, God, and I'll do it. Just make it stop. Which, if you think about it, really is a pretty arrogant way for me to live my life, thinking that I can control God or that I can control my circumstances. Living in this way with this view in mind is trying to manipulate God to do what I want him to do and how I want him to do it, which at the end of the day, if you think about it, it actually breaks the first commandment. You shall have no other God before me, because when I live my life like that, I am making myself God, and I am expecting the actual God to follow my orders. But we need to remember God didn't give us his law and his commands to obligate himself to do whatever our behaviors um, should drive him to do. That's not the reason he gave us his law. So why did he do it? Why did he give us his commands? Well, traditionally, in church history, there are three reasons or uses of God's law. And the first one is taking place in our passage. Right? God is forming his literal nation. His chosen nation of Israel. Israel was a theocracy that God himself led. So newsflash, America is not God's chosen nation. So this does not apply to us, but the other two certainly do. The second use I'll get to in a minute, but the third use of the law is essentially a guideline for us for how to live as followers of God. And this absolutely applies to us. We even talked about this in the membership vow, that third vow, living our lives in a way that reflect the gospel. If you are in a relationship with God to live rightly, we should keep him first in our lives. He should be our priority. We need to keep our lives free from idols. An idol is anything other than God, even good things that we look to for our significant worth and satisfaction. God says, don't look to those things because you will only find that in me. We need to honor his name, his character, and his goodness, and we need to rest and relax in his promises. That is how we relate to him as followers. But we also have ways that we can relate to each other. Children, honor and respect your parents. We hear in Deuteronomy that this is the only command that comes with a promise. God gave gave them to you for a reason. And in respecting and honoring your parents, you will be blessed in it. I wish my kids were here this morning to hear that, but they're not. Um, But it's one of the ten, Like, and you don't age out of this. This applies to us as adults as well. And so practically what that means is you celebrate what your parents do and did right and you forgive them for what they got wrong. We should not consume others. We should not consume their lives, not consume their sexuality. We should not steal what is not ours. We should live in honesty and integrity. And if we live our life in that way, it will go better practically for you. And it reflects what God has done for us. As the Apostle Paul said, it's living a life according to the life that you have received. It's one that brings glory to God and is good for us, but it is also good for the outside world. Living in a way that in a lot of ways is countercultural to the world we live in shows that there is more to life than simply living for yourself. Now, this is my experience. I told you a little bit about college and my story in college, a big reason that I wanted to change and quit living my life selfishly for myself was because of a guy named Bo Pennybaker. Bo was just different. Uh, He was kind. He treated people with respect. He was respectful to women. He had integrity. And I saw that. I saw how he was living. And I went to him and I said, hey, why do you live your life this way? I wanted what Bo had. 
And God really used Bo to, dry, to draw me into a relationship with himself. Bo Penny Baker, in living his life to bring glory to God and for the good of others, ended up being really good for me. God used him to change my life. And so that second use of the law, ironically, it's this, that we cannot keep the law, simply put. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 5 in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what he said. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of, or the, yeah, the hell of fire. He went on to say, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so what that means is that we are a room full of murderers and adulterers. Every single one of us. Jesus is showing us that our outward behavior is not what counts. He's talking about internal things. Anger is something that happens in your heart. Lust is a matter of your heart. There's another passage where a man walks up to Jesus and he says, hey, what's the most important commandment, right? What's the one that I need to remember? And Jesus said, it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say, all of the law and prophets depend on this dual command of loving God and loving others. And so what that means If you have done things, even really, really good things, but they aren't 100% completely motivated by a love of God and a love of others, then it doesn't count. It doesn't count at all. And so what this shows that on our own, keeping God's law is impossible. We cannot do it. And so the second use of the law sounds terrible, right? But we aren't without hope. There is good news, and this is our last point. The second use of the law is to drive us to Jesus. St. Augustine wrote on this very thing where he said, The law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask for the help of grace. Remember the order of the law. God saved his people before giving them his law. The law came to his people in God's grace. And it is only in grace that we too are able to keep his law. So then how do we do it? How do we truly obey the commands of God? Well, here's what we need to realize. The translation of the original language of the Ten Commandments is a little clunky. All right. In Deuteronomy, there's a passage where we're actually given that title, the Ten Commandments, and this is what it says. And he, glared, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on tablets of stone. That word commandments there in Hebrew, the word actually is word. So the ten words, and this is a little confusing because certainly there's more than just ten words, but this is super significant to remember and to realize. And the Apostle John tells us why. He writes this in John 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here's what we need to remember. The word of God, the commandments of God, they're not just a bunch of rules and commands, but they are actually a person. Right? We sang it earlier, you gave us your word. You are the word. The word of God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And it's actually in him that we can begin to obey the word of God through him. At the end of our passage, we are told, starting in verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I pointed out early on that Moses was the mediator. He was the go-between between God and his people. The people were afraid to approach God, and so Moses had to draw near to the thick darkness. He had to approach the thunder, the lightning, and the smoke of God's holiness because they were terrified. But we have to remember that Moses ultimately points to the greater mediator in Jesus Christ who 1,400 years later also climbed a mountain. He bore a cross and he took in the thunder, lightning, and smoke, the darkness of God's holy wrath, into his heart. Jesus Christ was the only person to ever keep the commands perfectly. He only lived for the love of God and for the love of, other, for, of others. He only ever honored and brought glory to his Father's name. He never committed one outward sin or had one sinful thought. And what did he get for his law-keeping? What happened to the word of God who became flesh? He drank the entirety of the cup of God's wrath into his perfect heart. And this is actually what enables us to keep the law. Because in taking the darkness into himself, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ and you look to him as your great mediator and savior, the prophet Ezekiel tells us what happens. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. From all of your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus Christ took all of the darkness into his heart, but remember what John said. The darkness has not overcome him. It did not overcome him. And because of that, through the Holy Spirit, he writes his word, his commandments on your heart. They actually become true of you. It becomes your nature, your new heart. And this is what God was teaching his people and what he teaches us. The way to live in freedom is actually a life of dependence on him every day. 
when you go back to the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, when you go back to it repeatedly, the fact that even though you clearly don't deserve it, Jesus through his, his death has graciously given you his pure heart, then you actually begin to keep the commandments. You put no other lesser God before him because of his beauty and the great lengths he went to for you. You repent of your idols and trust the accomplished work of Jesus. You rest in his promises to provide and care for you and your family. And it completely changes your relationships to those around you. You honor and forgive your parents even if they hurt you in terrible ways. The murderous hatred that existed in your heart is now replaced by a love for others because of the great love that you've been shown. And when people hate you, you forgive them because of all that you have been forgiven for. You don't chase after lesser lovers like lust. You don't hoard your money, but you give it away generously. You find contentment in the gifts that God gave you because you know you don't deserve them. And you don't lie to protect your reputation or your name because you know that your name is written in the book of life and it will be there for all eternity. I need more of that. I need that to be more true of me. We all do. And so let's close by asking Jesus to further press into our hearts his wholehearted love that motivates true and real obedience. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. Um, you've given us your commandments. Um, and ultimately, you gave us your word in your son who came to this earth, who walked among us, who tabernacled with us, who lived a perfect life, only ever obeying your commandments, every single one of them. And he was killed for it. But it was in his death that we have life. It was in him losing his name that we have our name written in the book of life. Father, I pray that we would return to that and press that into our hearts every day so that we actually can live out of gratitude and walk in your ways and your statutes, Father. Thank you for all that you've done, for loving us, for setting us apart. In your name I pray, amen.